0: This is Tom O'Connell. Welcome to my podcast, Vegas Fed. In 1990, I was a former Suffolk County, New York cop and assistant district attorney who found himself in the Mojave Desert prosecuting federal cases as an assistant U.S. attorney in Las Vegas, Nevada. The first case I'm going to revisit is the kidnapping for ransom, a very substantial ransom, of Kevin Wynn, the daughter of Steve Wynn, the man who revived and reinvented Las Vegas, when he opened the Mirage at the end of 1989. It is a story of desperation and greed, evil and stupidity, courage and love, and a lot of hard work in a mission to bring the perpetrators to justice. Las Vegas, the 90s, the new Vegas. The actual birthday was
1: November 22, 1989, the day the grandiose, lavish, sparkling new Mirage was unveiled to the world. The Strip had been reinvented. The architect of all of it? was the young, toothsome, and always tanned Steve Wynn. The naysayers said Wynn would never be able to generate the $1 million each day that would be required to keep the lights on. They were wrong. By 1993, the year of the infamous kidnapping, the Excalibur, the Luxor, the MGM Grand, and Wynn's own treasure island would be built. Thanks to Wynn, Vegas was booming, but his world was about to come crashing down around him. On this episode of Vegas Fed, Cuddy's fate is sealed in Newport Beach. Perjury indictments fly in Las Vegas, resulting in new government witnesses. And an absolutely devastating piece of evidence against Sherwood
0: is developed. The FBI was all over Cuddy in Newport Beach. Agents were staying close to him at the same Newport Beach Marriott, and even working out at the hotel gym just feet away from him. Backtracking, they'd learned that he'd paid $2,000 for a pair of ostrich-skin boots and $500 on a belt buckle, along with many other luxury items of clothing. And that he paid back his two old friends, Jimmy Kazir and Spiro, $32,000 and $35,000, respectively. They were also onto him smurfing, $9,600, in $100 bills the five different banks in Newport Beach. This means depositing cash in sums of less than $10,000 to avoid the banks filing currency transaction reports, CTRs, with the IRS. Banks are also obligated to file suspicious activity reports under such circumstances. None did. On several of the account applications, Cuddy used his mother's maiden name, Voss. He also shrewdly inverted two numbers from his social security card. In a few instances, they learned that he'd purchased a Rolex watch for $15,000, in hundreds, of course, at Mabuku Jewelers, a high end jewelry business which catered to the rich and famous, including several U.S. presidents. Their photos lined the walls. They learned of several money laundering attempts that didn't pan out with respect to the purchase of his dream car, $195,000 Ferrari, at a high end car dealership called Newport Imports. They dealt in Jaguars, Aston Martin's, Lotuses, and Ferraris. He started the transaction with a $9,000 down payment the day after the kidnapping. The following day, he returned with five checks, each in the amount of $9,600, the hundreds he had smurfed into new bank accounts, which no local bankers had found the least bit suspicious. Cuddy was seeking financial advice, asking about Cayman Islands accounts and the like, when he ran out of patience. Apparently, the effort of depositing sums under $10,000 was just going to be too great by the time it added up to the cost of a Ferrari. So on July 31st, he returned to Newport Imports with $60,000 in hundreds. Another IRS regulation requires the filing of a Form 8300 for cash transactions over $10,000. No 8300s were ever filed. I began to wonder if maybe Newport Beach was the money laundering capital of the world. Arrangements were made for the final payment of $70,000 and the pickup of the Ferrari on August 1st. Meanwhile, the dealership would install an upgraded stereo system and a car phone. Unlike Jake and Anthony, Cuddy picked the right place to spend his kidnapping proceeds. A couple of ghetto kids running around spending $100 bills was bound to draw a bit more attention than a well-dressed, would-be Newport Beach businessman who just won a huge lawsuit. By the time Ray Cuddy showed up in Kemble's Mercedes for his appointment at Newport Imports to pick up the Ferrari, the FBI was way ahead of him. Upon his arrival at the luxury auto dealership, instead of the Magnum P.I. car he dreamed of, he got a surprise, the FBI. Several armed FBI agents placed him under arrest. It was over for Ray Cuddy. Cuddy's immediate reaction was, how did you find me so fast? To borrow a phrase from my mentor, Kenny Hamilton, Cuddy didn't know whether to should or go blind. During the arrest process, he asked several times whether the other two guys had been caught yet. The car was searched. In the trunk was a Lucky's grocery bag containing $79,000 in hundreds, a Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum, several rounds of semi-jacketed hollow-point ammunition, gloves, and a stun gun, among other sundries. Cuddy's room at the Marriott was also searched. Another $91,000 in hundreds was recovered, as well as a pair of Reebok sneakers. This was an invaluable piece of evidence, as Kevin Wynn's townhouse, described by crime scene investigators as pristine, had yielded several lifts of footwear impressions, and among them, you guessed it, Reeboks. Shortly after Cuddy's arrest, his friend Spiro Kemble's phone rang. It was his mother. She was in a state of panic. She told him that the FBI had contacted her, that Cuddy had been arrested at Newport Imports, and that Spiro's Mercedes Benz, which Cuddy had driven there, was going to be impounded unless either he or his parents got down there to pick it up. The arrest was all over the news, and Spiro became aware that a large amount of the kidnapping proceeds were still missing. Cuddy had stored things in Spiro's garage through his years of bouncing around, including boxes of personal belongings. Spiro knew that Cuddy added to that pile when he got into town. Now he was curious as to what the new boxes contained. He subsequently called his father an attorney, who advised him to lock the garage, call the FBI, and don't go inside. Spiro called the FBI, but he ignored his father's advice about not going near the boxes. He went into the garage and took a peek in one, and saw stacks of $100 bills. The Bureau then executed a search warrant and recovered the hundreds, 5,000 of them, half a million dollars. We were naturally quite suspicious of Spiro, and over the next several months, he was interviewed by either myself or FBI agents more than a dozen times. I also subpoenaed him to the grand jury. We can never prove that Spiro knowingly did anything criminal to assist Cuddy, and he filled in a lot of blanks about Cuddy's short-lived, triumphant return to Newport Beach. Meanwhile, Mike Growney, the lead agent in Las Vegas, had a chat with Cuddy after he'd been transported to the local FBI resident office in Santa Ana. Making a long story short, Cuddy invoked his right to counsel after being Mirandized. Then Cuddy began to cry and asked Growney to stay and talk, if Growney would disclose the evidence against him. He did. Cuddy then changed his mind again and invoked all over again, whereupon Growney reminded him that he'd promised to talk if Growney had outlined the evidence for him. Cuddy then spilled his guts about the whole affair. We knew that we couldn't use his statements at trial, but that little leprechaun Brownie, who was a lawyer himself, had been able to sweet-talk Cuddy into giving us a plethora of intel, though some of it was BS and we knew it. We just hoped all this didn't blow up in our face. Things were looking incredibly grim for Ray Cuddy, and our plan to give him enough rope to hang himself had worked to near perfection. Meanwhile, the press in LA and Vegas were going crazy over the arrest. Several national television shows called me, and all I gave any of them was no comment. The next morning, Ray Cuddy was transported, pursuant to federal law, to the nearest courthouse for an initial appearance before a federal magistrate. In a pro forma hearing in Los Angeles, he pleaded not guilty. His court appointed attorney made some noise about Mike Growney's improper interrogation of her new client and said she would be seeking suppression of the statement. As I said, we knew that was coming. She also told the press that Cuddy was reluctant to return to Vegas and had security concerns. Neither she nor the AUSA who was handling matters for the government were shy about talking to the press. As a matter of fact, both lawyers called me in an attempt to persuade me to allow them to try to work out a plea there. This was the sort of pilfering the FBI had been concerned about, but this time it would be the prosecutors doing the overreaching. Dealing with L.A. was always an experience. Their people often displayed an air of superiority towards smaller districts, I could give several examples, but I won't do so now. But getting help from them was always a challenge. Now they were making a ridiculous request of me. Of course, I didn't blink. It was absurd to even consider disrupting things by allowing the delay of proceedings and the indefinite languishing of the defendant in another city. We had already invested quite a bit in this case, and the crime had affronted this community, where the winds were responsible for employing thousands, not Los Angeles. They really wanted the case, though, I suppose because of the media attention it was generating. Cuddy's lawyer even elaborated on the security issue. The defendant did not want to return to Vegas, she explained, because he was afraid Steve Wynn would have him killed. I told the lawyer that she and her client had been watching way too much television and added facetiously that if Wynn were some kind of crime boss and planned to have Cuddy killed while in custody, he could do it as easily in L.A. as Vegas. Wynn was the hugely successful CEO of a publicly held corporation, not some leg-breaker. Cuddy complained to the magistrate that his glasses, which were seized along with his other property upon his arrest, had not been returned, and he cannot read without them. This claim would lay the foundation for yet another future legal tactic by Cuddy's attorneys. Cuddy was detained without bail and order removed to the District of Nevada. The daily headlines continued to blare anything they could think of that was related to the case, no matter how trivial or remote about how casino executives were now worried about their safety, about how the last industry kidnapping had occurred in 1976, about how Sonny's Saloon was once in the news about 14 years earlier for being terrorized by a pair of escaped ostriches. The Bureau and the cops were doggedly tracking leads regarding Jake and Anthony. In the meantime, I needed to meet with the victim of the case to assure her that we will work the case properly to begin establishing some degree of trust and rapport She came into my office a few days later. If I expected some broken, damaged little girl, I was happily mistaken. Kevin Wynn was attractive, fit, and downright perky. She had not let this experience get her down. At least that was her public persona. I'm sure she did have demons to deal with in her own mind, in her own way. I had been very impressed with the grit she displayed during her ordeal, and now I had the same reaction to her determination to assist in the prosecution of the perpetrators. She may have been a homecoming queen, but Kevin was no shrinking violent. Underneath the pretty wrapping was one tough cookie. We spent considerable time reviewing her tape recorder interview from the night of the kidnapping, the rough transcript of which had been provided to me. We discussed what lay ahead, how the system would play this thing out, what the ballpark sentencing options were. The genial Granny would be instrumental in our effort to treat Kevin respectfully and keep her in the loop. I suggested that he be the point of contact with Kevin so that there was no confusion as to whom she should call in a pinch. I think over the next year or so, he became sort of a Dutch uncle to her. Subsequently, I would meet with our other victim, Kevin's father, for the same reasons, plus an additional one. Steve Wynn controlled a small army of security people, and they'd done a hell of a job investigating the case. His people were headed by Steve Koenig, a big guy around my age from New Jersey. He had gotten his start in the casino business in Atlantic City. Koenig had several ex-New York City cops as his right-hand men. They were right at a central casting. An Irish guy named Leo, who went by Mickey, a swarthy Italian guy named What Else, Vinny, and a tall Jewish guy named Stu. I was really enjoying my new acquaintanceship with these characters, and they were as serious as a heart attack about the case. They were coming up with a few pretty good leads of their own. In fact, after Kevin was found at McCarran, Wynne's people, including Bobby Baldwin, the president of the Golden Nugget, were driving up that I fifteen, climbing at the garbage pails at rest stops looking for clues. Absolutely amazing. But I was starting to worry about the lines of authority being blurred, worried that their actions could be seen as government sanctioned. They would wind up accused of acting as stalking horses for the FBI. If so, discovery issues could be implicated, evidence ordered suppressed, etc. Not the right way to do things. So much can go wrong in any case. We didn't need to create issues or we can nip them in the bud. This one was going to be done right and I wanted to discuss this with Steve Wynn and strongly suggest that his guys back off unless and until requested otherwise. Brownie arranged a meeting at Wynn's office. He was a perfect gentleman. He agreed to have his people completely defer to us in investigative matters and place his full trust in my discretion when it came to plea bargaining. The cooperation promised by Steve Wynn would make my life much easier, as his word is as good as law when it comes to his staff. I need to disclose something about Mike Brownie. When I became aware of the fact that he was the case agent assigned, I was candidly not happy. As I said, I liked Mike personally. He was like a little white-haired leprechaun, but he and I were on different career paths. He was closing in on retirement, and I was the up-and-coming senior litigation counsel, soon to be the chief of the Narcotics and Violent Crime section of the U.S. Attorney's Office. I knew from past dealings with him that we operated in different gears. This was not the case for an agent who was not ready to rumble. I made some noises to Catherine Landreth, the U.S. Attorney, who called the FBI SAC. To address my concerns, he assigned a second agent, Skip Wilkes. Skip was a West Point grad, and he and I had revived a case that had been dormant for eight years together. That defendant, Gregory Barker, had fled Virginia after murdering a woman, committed three bank robberies here in Vegas, and vanished. He was also suspected of being a serial killer, including the killer of an FBI agent's daughter. After being featured on Unsolved Mysteries, he was arrested in Phoenix. So Skip and I went to general quarters. In a transient town like Vegas, just finding the witnesses would be a challenge, but we convicted Barker after a contentious trial. So I was reassured by the addition of Skip Wilkes. Meanwhile, a torrid pace of running down and interrogating witnesses had commenced in Sacramento. No fewer than a dozen of Jake and Anthony's cohorts were interviewed by Chuck Riley and his guys the first week in August. We learned that after the kidnapping, Jake and Anthony rendezvoused at McCarran with Cuddy and fled back to Sacramento via a Southwest Airlines flight. Jake had a bag full of money, which Cuddy had given him. Anthony was in the dark about how much They were picked up at the Sacramento airport very late that night by a friend, Lavelle Jackson. The pair was in extraordinarily good spirits, and Anthony exclaimed, "Tadao, baby, a term which amongst their peers indicated extreme good fortune.
2: Meanwhile, up in Sacramento, California, another transformation had taken place. And a frog had turned into a prince. And that was Jake Sherwood. Jake Sherwood and Anthony Watkins weren't like Ray Cuddy. They were young, they had never lived in a place like Newport Beach. They didn't crave the acceptance of high society where Ray Cuddy did. They had their own world, their own fantasies. Fantasies, some of them modest than Mr. Cuddy's. But like Ray Cuddy, they were willing to take a shot at the big prize. And so in late July, 1993, They took a little trip to Las Vegas at the invitation of Ray Cuddy. And upon their return to Sacramento, they were the toast of the town among their pathetic group of peers. You'll hear from some of that group. I would submit to you that you'll find a disturbing array of young people who were devoid of ambition, devoid of direction, And pretty much devoid of any moral constitution. Because this wretched bunch gladly accepted the $100 bills that Jake Sherwood and Anthony Watkins were handing out like they were going out of style.
0: They handed Lavelle a $100 bill. Then they headed to Mary McBride's apartment with hundreds of thousands of dollars in $100 bills. They were big time. Jake and Anthony made veiled remarks about the fortune and $100 bills they had in their possession and cryptic references to how they'd obtained it. After a while, Jake and Glenda McBride left Mary's and checked into a Holiday Inn. There they counted his money, $300,000. She cleaned up the paper bands that held the hundreds together in bundles marked $10,000. Then Jake disclosed that although he had earned $300,000, Anthony's cut was only $100,000, a third of Jake's share. He warned Glenda not to tell Anthony and gave her $500 bills. Likewise, Cuddy had not revealed to his co-conspirators that the ransom had actually totaled $1.45 million, confirming that there was no honor among thieves or kidnappers. The next morning, Jake bought himself a Cadillac for $2,000 and purchased $1,500 in jewelry for Glenda, using hundreds. Meanwhile, Anthony Watkins, accompanied by Lavelle, went on a spending spree. He bought himself a Grand Prix for 2000 and $1,300 worth of jewelry in the name of Mary McBride. He then bought a $3,000 stereo system for his new car and gifted $9,500 to Lavelle and about $1,000 to other friends, all in hundreds. Then they proceeded to the apartment of another friend, Jennifer, where a half dozen unemployed dregs on public assistance stayed and starting handed out $100 bills, around $5,000 in total. To Dow, life was good, but not for long. That evening, Julie McBride advised that the feds were looking for the duo and Jake went into panic mode sprinting away and injuring himself, jumping over a fence and running across the freeway. Injured, Jake now turned to Jennifer and her merry band of cretins. In his frantic retreat, he lost his keys. He needed them to find them and to go back to the hotel for his money. Failing to find the keys in the dark, somehow the girls BS'd their way into the hotel and retrieved the sack full of hundreds. Jake distributed an additional $50,000 in hundreds among five of his buddies for their assistance. At one point, they were pulled over by police for a traffic violation and let go. During the drive, Jake angrily referred several times to the bitch and remarked that the bitch had an attitude. Their victory lap in Sacramento was about to end. Subpoenaed Mary and Glenda McBride, among others, to the grand jury for August 4th, 1993, the next day that they were scheduled to convene. Also subpoenaed was another girlfriend of Jake Sherwood's, named Irene, who had been called from the 7-Eleven as well. We wanted their truthful testimony, and we would attempt to draw flies with honey first. Chuck Riley had warned, however, that they were hard cases and might well lie again. If they did, I assured him, I would dispense some vinegar. They would give their testimony, as required by law, and if it was untruthful and material, meaning important to the case, they'd be indicted for perjury. Based upon previous experience, not with me, Chuck didn't seem to think I'd follow through on my promise. He practically dared me to present perjury charges when the McBrides would no doubt, inevitably, lie. Talk about the best laid plans. Like I said, we try honey first. The Bureau had scheduled a press conference for the same morning to announce that Cuddy's accomplices had now been positively identified and were being sought. Blown-up photos would be displayed in the hopes that a tipster might give them up. The FBI SAC, Randy Prilliman, invited me to attend, although he and Sheriff John Moran, the elected head of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, would do all the talking, taking due credit for an intensive investigation which had rapidly solved the case and netted the ringleader in a matter of days. Protocol when it comes to press releases, news conferences, and the like, is that pre-indictment, it's the investigating agency's call. After indictment, it's up to the U.S. Attorney's Office to decide how to proceed. The FBI, in conformity with its history, wanted maximum public exposure for their effort. On this occasion, the recognition they sought was in fact well deserved. I'm at Grownie over at the Bureau. He had made arrangements for an investigative assistant, an IA, to pick up the three witnesses at McCarran. The plan was to attend the press conference, and if the girls arrived before it concluded, to put them somewhere where they could wait comfortably. Well, they arrived shortly after I did, and before we could take the McBrides and Irene over to the grand jury, we had the matter of the press conference was just about to start. I should have blown it off. Someone suggested that the McBrides and Irene relax in a small coffee room located off the Squad 5 room. There was coffee and soft drinks available there, and I could be easily kept on them. It was important to keep the girls uninformed about the progress of the case for now. We were going to be taking our shot at them in the grand jury later in the morning. We were sure there was quite a bit of information they could supply us with, if they were of mind to. Nothing could be done to upset them. We knew that they knew we were looking for Sherwood and Watkins, but we figured that they probably had underestimated how much we knew. They might therefore be a lot less hinky and more talkative than their boyfriends would prefer them to be. It was also possible, though far less likely, that they didn't know very much about the crime at all. If that were the case, they might not even be all that nervous. Either way, we wanted to play this out in a manner designed to gain the most information we possibly could. No need to alienate potentially dynamite witnesses. The only thing that they could not, under any circumstances, know was that complaints had been filed under seal the day before and arrest warrants issued for Jake and Anthony. God only knows what their reactions might be. I didn't want to find out. The press conference went well. Agent Burke Smith, the FBI's public information officer, waved photos of Cuddy, along with Jake and Anthony, announced that they were fugitives of the subjects of a nationwide manhunt and that they should be considered armed and dangerous. The front page of the next day's Las Vegas Review-Journal featured Burke with his movie star looks, mugshots in hand, Randy Prilliman fielded most of the questions, yielding politely on occasion to Sheriff Moran. Prilliman even mentioned my contributions to the investigation, an unprecedented compliment in my career from the Bureau. The room was packed full of radio and television news crews, print journalists and photographers who appeared to be duly impressed. The Bureau, Metro and myself were pleased with how it all went. A little positive media coverage, if done with discretion, is good for law enforcement morale. The press conference over with, it was time to get back to the all-important task in hand, the gathering of evidence via the finessing of the young girls from Sacramento and the grand jury. I got quite a surprise a few minutes later. What had occurred probably convinced the McRoy's that we, like all cops in their view, were never to be trusted. Unbeknownst to either Growney and myself, one of the local television stations had broadcast the press conference live, and there was a small television set, in the coffee room where we had stashed the girls. While awaiting our return, they had turned it on. Whatever daytime show it was they hoped to catch, it was preempted by, you guessed it, the live broadcast of the press conference. We were now confronted with hysterical witnesses. After debriefing them, it was apparent that they had no desire to assist us, or to even help themselves. They would amply demonstrate this shortly before the federal grand jury. By the time the day was out, they committed perjury in an attempt to protect their lovers. Things had moved so quickly in Newport Beach and Sacramento that we felt we had enough evidence to indict Cuddy, Sherwood, and Watkins, charging them with extortion of $1.45 million from the Raj via the kidnapping of Kevin Wynn and use of a firearm during that crime. At the next grand jury session, we did. Cuddy was, of course, under wraps at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Los Angeles and Jake and Anthony were in the wind. That left the McBrides. I called Chuck Riley up in Sacramento, who was thrilled and surprised that I had been true to my word and indicted them. I faxed him copies of the warrants that the Las Vegas magistrate had issued at my request. And that night, on a Vegas evening news, I watched footage, courtesy of a Sacramento TV station, of Chuck placing the handcuffed McBride sisters in the back of his G-Ride. Facing the brunt of a five-year maximum sentence for perjury, the McBrides would soon accept the advice of their court-appointed attorneys and enter into a cooperation agreement with the government. They would tell us all about the white guy named Uncle Ray and the lucrative business venture he had led Anthony and Jake into in Vegas. And much more. The next day, we received a devastating piece of evidence from the FBI lab. They confirmed that the prints lifted from the a parking ticket at McCarran Airport were Jake Sherwood's. Dow, baby.
1: Next time on Vegas Fed, Sherwood and Watkins flee Sacramento. Hundred dollar bills are again flying, this time in St. Louis. The McBride sisters have a change of heart. AUSA J. Angelo joins the prosecution team, and one of the three kidnappers flips. This podcast was recorded on the campus of UNLV in the studios at 91.5 KUNV Radio with engineering and editing by Kevin Crawl. Content and music copyright 2020. Tom O'Connell.